Okay, so we are looking at Genesis chapter 14, and this is verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Kedor Leomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings, so all these names are names of kings, these kings made war with, and another list of kings, number one, Bera, king of Sodom, Number two, Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Number three, Shinab, king of Atma. Number four, Shemabur, king of Zeboim. And number five, the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So, okay, just the first two verses, very, very boring, a very, very long list of names. They're just lists of names of kings. And essentially, they're just these two groups of kings that are takawing against one another. Uh, one is led by this guy named Kader Leomer. He's the big boss. And the other one is just a bunch of kings, but from Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, okay. So hopefully that's helpful. Uh, verse 3, And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. So this is where they're going to takao, this place called the Salt Sea. Verse 4, Twelve years they had served Kader Leomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So the context of this story, you're wondering why we're reading this, uh, you'll lead on to connect to Abram towards the end. But in the beginning, they're painting once upon a time, there are all these kings that are fighting against one another. And for 12 years, these bunch of kings in Sodom and Gomorrah, they had a big boss called Kedar Leomer. And after 12 years, they went, you know what, we've got enough. We're going to fight back. We're no longer going to call in the boss. We're not going to give him money and that kind of thing. But instead, we're going to takao. We're going to fight war against them. And that's what happened in the 13th year. So verse 5. In verse 5 onwards, the big boss, Kedil Yomer, fights back against these kings. So verse 5. In the 14th year, Kedil Yomer and the kings who were with him came and they defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim. So they came, they defeated this area. They took over this area. And the Zuzim and Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh Kiryataim, and the Horites in their hill country of Sire, as far as Alparan on the border of the wilderness. And so they, they named these four territories. They just went bam, 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 bam. They just fought, they defeated, and they took over these four territories. Which, which gives you a kind of picture of how Teramera, uh, Kedar Leomer is. Kedar Leomer is this guy who just goes out, he just takes over all these territories. And that's why he's the boss. He's this conqueror. He's this very, very powerful, formidable king who goes around fighting against other kings and forcing them to be his slave. Verse 7 then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So what I find interesting is, you know, they fight, 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 they turn back, fight, 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 fight some more. But it doesn't actually use the word fight. It uses the word defeat. <laughs> As if there's no contest. They didn't go out to fight and see who's the strongest. They know they're the strongest. And they're just going out to just knock down one by one by one. Meaning they're just pushing through all these territories and just showing them who's the boss. And descriptions of 
as far as Sa'er, as the border of the wilderness, you know, meaning they went really, really out of that country, as far as the wilderness, meaning talking about the desert down south, means they went as far as they could and took over all the territories along the way. And then they turned back and defeated all the country of the Malachites, meaning no country too big, no country too far away could fight against this big boss, Kader Leomer. Okay, uh-huh. So it brings us back to the original list of kings that were fighting against Kader Leomer in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Atma, the king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined, they pakat together, they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with or against Kader Leomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Sorry, it's a bug. <laughs> There's a bug. Okay, yeah. So four kings against five. And it's because there are more kings now against these four kings. It means um, they've tried to stack up the odds. They say, hey, these guys have been defeating everyone. Let's work together. Let's gang up against them. And four against five means maybe, maybe Sodom and Gomorrah stands a chance. Unfortunately, they don't. <laughs> Verse 10. Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits. Imagine these pits full of like black tar. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they're running away, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So meaning there was no fight. <laughs> they ran away from them and uh, they got stuck along the way. Some ran away to the hills, meaning everyone was running for their lives. There was no battle, no fight, no way that they could go against Cato Leomer, even though they ganged up, even though they had more people, they just lost. So as a result, verse 11, the enemy, so the enemy, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and when they're, they're away, they just sapu everything, <laughs> wiped everything out. They also took Lot, uh -huh, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, let's just pause here and um, I know it mentions Lot and it's going to bring Abraham into the picture, but just pause here for a moment to think about these kings who are rebelling against the big boss. It's a picture of how, you know, you can amass your strength and still lose. You can do all the right things, you know, get the right numbers, get the strategy, and you can still lose if, in a sense, I think if the motivation is selfish, you know, you just want to fight someone else for your own freedom, and especially if actually God's judgment is against you. Now, why do I say God's judgment? It's because of these tar pits. You know, it says there, as they were running away, some fell into these tar pits. It's almost like saying something stopped them even from running away from the defeat. And there were all these circumstances that were just against them. You know, they were in their home territory, but they lost. They were trying to run away and something stopped them from even saving themselves. And it shows that actually there was a kind of judgment, silently speaking, that God had caused on these kings because of their rebellion. 
So yeah, something note there. Okay, let's let's pick up from uh, where we left off. Remember, Lot has been taken away, and Lot is Abram's nephew. Verse thirteen. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and of Anir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. He counts them. He says, you know, 318 guys have been trained by Abram. He called them out and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. So it seems like this is an instinctive, immediate reaction. Someone told Abram, hey, your, your nephew is going to He went straight, he went out. But he also went out together with these friends, you know, Mamre, Eshkol, and Anir. He's kind of like Hengdai. And it sounds as if Abram was kind of like chilling, <laughs> maybe at the bar together with his friends. And then someone comes in the bar, hey, Abram, you know, someone took your nephew away. And he gets his friends along together with him on this kind of like rescue project. He doesn't go in alone. He brings these fighting guys. And initially, it sounds like a lot, you know, 318. But you need to remember that there are like four kings who just defeated like six or seven countries. So, you know, they would have a lot more than 318 people, probably thousands, you know, tens of thousands. And they have experience. These are fighting men. Abram was like just this rich dude. <laughs> but Abram goes against them with this, just his buddies. And the thing is, he wins. He actually defeats this huge, undefeatable king called Cater Leomer, verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all his possessions and all, so brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So he saved Lot, but also and the women and the people and possessions. And it's, called, it's kind of like a spillover effect of Abram focusing all his love, all his salvation on one person, but ends up saving a lot more people in the process. So what do we see from this? You know, we see um, Abram, this is one guy, motivated out of love. You know, he, he's not trying to take over territory. He's not even defending his own territory. But because someone else is in danger, someone whom he loves, he goes all in and he saves that person together with everyone around him. And that should then give us a kind of contrast to that first scenario. You know, both are fighting for freedom. You know, both were fighting with everything they had. And if you think of it, just humanly speaking, the first group should win. You know, they had the odds, they had the firepower, but they lost. And again, it's a hint of God's judgment upon that loss. A kind of judgment as upon a kind of self-salvation project. You know what I mean? You know, you, you want to save yourself, but you need to save using your own efforts, using your own strength. And it's kind of saying like, no matter how strong you are, you cannot do that. You're, you're not gonna win. Uh, in fact, you, you don't have the kind of strength needed to free yourself from the powers of you know, darkness and death and sin and destruction. It, it, it's just not possible. But then what is the alternative? And the alternative, interestingly enough, it's so counterintuitive. It's so, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. It's just this guy who really, really loves you. 
and you can tell that that kind of love is almost infectious by the kind of people who helps Abram. You know, he calls these brothers, you know, Mamri and Eshkol and Anir. It's almost as if it's emphasizing their relationship with one another. They're brothers, they're hengdai, and they're saying like, hey, Abram, you're a buddy. Of course, you know, we're in it with you. Or maybe they're even saying, hey, you would do this for us. So we're going to do this with you. Even, you know, even the 318 men, these were people that he trained, you know, his trained men. They were born in his house. They're almost like his family saving another one of their family members. And so here we have a picture of salvation that is very, very different from a self-salvation project because it's essentially saying, well, you can't save yourself. See, the person we're meant to identify with in this story, I don't think is Abram. I think it's not, it's not saying that, oh, we should be pure in our motives. You should try to use our wealth or wherever to help someone else, which, which would be a good thing, which would be great. But I wonder if the person we're meant to identify with is actually Lot, his useless nephew, Lot. <laughs> he chose to go to Sodom. He's, he's, his problem, he's really got caught in this struggle that is, in effect, out of his control. You know, this war, you know, he didn't orchestrate this war, but he was just caught in it. And there was no way he could save himself. And he needed someone from the outside, someone who loved him, someone who would come for him, someone who would fight for him and save him and together with everyone around him. And that, that, that's the unique, very, very special picture of what it means to be saved in Christ. You know, it's nothing that we could do. Um, you know, we are not, you know, you think of the, 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 the things that you want to change the world. We are not able to do that. You know, you might be able to change like a habit, like your diet and that kind of thing, but you want to change the world like a war somewhere in Europe or you want to change the politics in your country. You know, sometimes we do try to do that and you try to get friends around us. You try to do a social media project, get everyone excited about it. And then it works maybe for a certain period or a certain extent and then it doesn't last. And how much more is something like salvation from sin and death and hell? God is saying, you cannot, you cannot do this on your own. And what you need is someone who truly loves you, who is able to fight for you, and who saves you in such a way that it's not just about you, but saves you out of his love and saves you in such a way that others around you experience that love and that salvation together with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more. That's more in Genesis chapter fourteen. But we're, we'll stop there. I think. I think it's it's a real contrast about what it means to not just be judged and to be saved, but what it means to try to save ourselves, and what it means to receive this gift of this salvation of this love that comes from God and His power and His salvation in Christ. <laughs>